I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. Hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in because inside that bulletin there's an insert that's going to have an outline that you can follow along the sermon this morning. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of John, we anticipate, for the better part of two years. And throughout these 21 chapters, I've divided them into themes. And chapters 1 and chapter 2, if you'll remember, we considered this theme of Jesus is here. He's shown up. He's arrived. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is here. And we considered that truth in the first two chapters. As we turn now to chapter 3, we're going to consider this theme, Jesus is life. Life comes through Jesus alone. And we will be in John chapter 3, and we're going to take this theme all the way through Easter Sunday. And I, don't, I can't tell you how excited I am that on Easter Sunday, I'm going to be proclaiming from the Gospel of John that Jesus is life. He is life. As we come to John chapter 3 this morning, uh, we're going to look at a message I've entitled, The Musts of Salvation. The Musts of Salvation. If anyone is to be saved, if anyone is to know God, if anyone is to be forgiven of the guilt of their sin, there are some things that must take place. These musts are mentioned by Jesus in the passage we're going to study in John 3, verses 1 through 15. These musts that we'll look at, they answer the most fundamental question of humanity. They answer, really, what Christianity provides. The answer to life's greatest dilemma. The answer to humankind's most significant problem. This passage portrays, again, the fundamental answer to humankind's greatest problem. And only the gospel has that answer. Now, that's a pretty lofty statement to make. Only Christianity, of all the other religions in the world, only Christianity has the answer to the world's most significant problem. Well, we're going to consider that today. And I think it might be helpful to know what humankind's greatest problem is. If we're going to understand what the answer to humankind's greatest problem is, we can see it all the way in the earliest chapters of the Bible back in Genesis 3. In fact, look at this next slide. The world's greatest problem is this, alienation from God, separation from God. We were created in the image of God for relationship, for fellowship, for intimacy, with our creator so that God could lavish upon us himself, his gifts, his favor. But all of us, out of our own choices, by the own decisions of our will, we have chosen to disobey God. We have chosen to, broken, to break his law and to live in disobedience to his commands. And because of our personal choices, we experience alienation with God. We've all entered into what is a catastrophic condition separated from the God who created us for fellowship with him. Now, because of the nature of this alienation from God, there is absolutely nothing we can do to solve it. It is outside our capacity 
to correct this dilemma. It is outside our ability to solve this problem. And I want us to understand this alienation from God that every human being has with two aspects. And these are the two aspects that are talked about in our passage today. The first aspect of our alienation with God I would describe as judicial condemnation. Judicial condemnation. Legally, judicially, we stand before the judge of the universe condemned. We are guilty. We are under this imprisonment, and we're awaiting the sentence before the judge of the universe. There's also a second consequence of this alienation, not only judicial condemnation, but I would refer to it as moral corruption. Moral corruption, our nature, who we are, is altogether and completely corrupt. Our desires are corrupt. As a father and a husband, I've led our family through having morning devotionals for now over 20 years. And early on in our time together, I began to train up my children in what's known as a catechism. And what a catechism simply is, it's a big word that just simply means questions and answers. And so we would memorize these questions and answers, and I would ask my children every morning these questions, and they would have the memorized responses. And the reason we do it is so that they can have cemented in their minds and by the power of the Spirit cemented in their hearts these truths about who God is and about his gospel. As I was preparing this message, it just so happens last week, we hadn't looked at our catechism for a while. We went back to it last week in our morning devotional. And it just so happens this passage we're studying today is particularly relevant in questions 16, 17, and 18. So I'm going to have a pop quiz for my kids. Y'all want to listen to them? Let's see if they can get it, okay? Here's question number one of Charles Spurgeon's catechism. It's this, into what state did the fall bring mankind? Okay, let's see if they got it right. The fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. That was the easy one. Here's question 17. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that state wherein two men fell? Sinfulness of that state. Okay, let's see if they got it right. The sinfulness of that state wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual, actual transgressions which proceed from it. Question number 18. Wherein consists the misery of that state wherein two man fell? All mankind... Perfect. Good job, children. <laughs> you did it. Let's give them a hand. I mean, that's pretty difficult. To... Here's what it says. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. We are under his wrath and curse. That's judicial condemnation. And so we are liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the only just punishment is the pains of hell forever. You see what kind of miserable condition we are in in our sinfulness? We are judicially condemned to be judged forever, 
And our nature is morally corrupt. And this is what Jesus is going to answer in this passage. The answer to this most difficult, fundamental problem of humankind. Alienation from God. And in the passage, he identifies the answer to these two aspects with the word must. So as we read it, look for the word must. That's going to be your clue. John 1, beginning in verse 1. John 3, excuse me. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, here we go, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, when we read the text, did you catch the two musts, right? Verse 7, you must be born again. Verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Well, it is these two musts that solve the two aspects of the world's greatest problem, alienation from God, of which all of us are partakers. So how do we answer these problems? Problem number one, is this, the corruption of our hearts. The corruption of our hearts. And here's the supernatural solution that comes from God alone. The sinner must be born again. Now let me point out something that we might miss in reading the text. We're really thankful for the big numbers and the little numbers that we see in our Bibles. Those tell us the chapters, that's the big numbers, and the individual verses, that's the little numbers. But those numbers were not in the original manuscripts of our Bibles. They were actually added some 1,500 years after the Bible was complete. But I'm thankful for them because I can say, turn to John 3, verse 1, and you can go right there. But sometimes these numbers that were added later can actually obscure the meaning of the text because of their sometimes arbitrary positions. And I think here's one of them. You see, because what John is doing under the inspiration of the Spirit is he is connecting what he's saying about this encounter with Nicodemus to what he said at the end of chapter 2. In fact, look at the last two verses of chapter 2. John writes, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You see what John's doing? 
Jesus knows what's in the heart of every man, and there was a man named Nicodemus. In other words, he knew what was in Nicodemus's heart. He knew his very nature. This is the setup for this whole passage that reveals the fundamental problem of humanity. We were all born corrupt. I was born corrupt, and I hate to break it to you, you were born corrupt, and Nicodemus was born corrupt. Now, this corruption of our hearts is often referred to in theology as original sin, and what it means is really someone who is outside the capacity to perform uh, good deeds, to perform righteousness, and it's outside our capacity to correct our issue. We need someone outside of us to perform this spiritual heart surgery to remove the heart of stone that is impenetrable with truth and to replace it with a heart of flesh that is malleable and will receive truth. And so Jesus refers to this event, Jesus refers to the supernatural heart surgery with synonymous terms. Born again, born from above, born anew, born by the Spirit. We read Titus 3.5. Regeneration. These are all terms that refer to this supernatural heart surgery that takes place in the life of a lost person. And there's a couple things I want us to see about this solution that God's provided, this new birth, this being born again or born of the Spirit. First of all, I want us to think about its necessity. Its necessity. Jesus said in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God of God. It is an absolute necessity for anyone who would enter the kingdom of God, for anyone who would have eternal life, to be born again. And did you notice in verse 5, he doesn't say, unless you are born again. He says, unless one is born again. This is a universal problem, not just an individual problem for Nicodemus. He repeats that again in verse 7. He says, unless one is born of the Spirit. And then he, excuse me, verse 5. And then in verse 7, he says, he makes it personal, unless you must be born again. The point is, again, this is not a sporadic issue with just a few people here and there. This is a universal, comprehensive problem for every human that's ever walked the planet. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he or she has been born again. Now, what's remarkable about Jesus saying this is the person to whom he's saying it. He's saying it to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is described here by John with a couple descriptions. First of all, he says he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee, and second, he tells us he's a ruler of the Jews. Now, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have known his Bible very, very well. He would have had a large portion of the Old Testament committed to memory. Beyond that, he would have been one who obeyed the commands and the observances of the Old Testament with exacting precision. He would have been one that, he, if he was in our community, we would look to him as one with an outstanding reputation, one with stellar character. He was one, as a Pharisee, who gave to the poor. He was very charitable. He was honest in all of his dealings and, and very good in the way he lived his life. But regardless of all the goodness that he did, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's also a ruler. Now, what this means is that Nicodemus sat on what would be effectively the legal and the theological supreme court over Israel, the Sanhedrin. He was a ruler over the Israeli people. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus believed that if a Jew, not just himself, but if any Jew, keeps the customs, keeps the laws, 
does not abandon in some form of apostasy, he can be guaranteed to enter the kingdom of God. He was assured of this. And as a Pharisee and as a ruler over Israel, he was at the head of the class. He believed in his own self-assurance. I'm going to enter the kingdom because of who I am. Now, when he comes to Jesus, he acknowledges a couple things about the Lord. He says, first of all, I recognize you are a teacher. He calls him rabbi. Second thing he acknowledges about Jesus is that he is performing signs, miracles, wonders. And he says, based on your teaching, based on the signs you're performing, I know you have been sent from God. Now, it's probably because of his position as a member of the Sanhedrin that he comes at night. He comes under the cloak of darkness. He comes in a level of secrecy. But Jesus, knowing what was in the heart of all men and knowing what was in the heart of Nicodemus, he says to him, truly, truly. In other words, you better pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is truth. Unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's talking to the top dog. He's talking to the number one religious figure in Israel. And he says to him, unless you are born again, unless you are born of the Spirit, you will not only not see the kingdom of God, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And there is something that is utterly essential and necessary that him as a very religious man needed to see. He must be born again. Now, in recent decades, this phrase, born again, has been taken by sociologists, demographers, political pundits, and pollsters, and they've used this term, born again, to describe a certain segment of our population. And so when they refer to Christians, the larger group of Christians, they would say, well, there are Roman Catholic Christians, there are Episcopal Christians, there are Methodist Christians, there are mainline Protestant Christians, and then there's those holy rollers, the born-again Christians. But according to Jesus, there's only one kind of Christian, born again. If you are not born again, you are not a Christian. You can't say you're a Christian if you've not been supernaturally born of the Spirit. That's why he says, unless you've been born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus comes to Nicodemus in the first century, and he comes to us in the 21st century. And he talks about, with striking clarity, about this necessity, you must be born again. But here's the second thing about being born again I want us to see. It's nature. The nature of being born again. It appears that Nicodemus is massively confused about what Jesus is talking about. So he asks some clarifying questions. He he says to Jesus, look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we we have to see really two flaws that are in Nicodemus' thinking. Nicodemus is thinking only about this earthly concept from an earthly perspective, and so he's not thinking about spiritual things. Jesus, like he often did, used a earthly story or metaphor or picture to describe and display spiritual realities, and that's what he's doing here. When he uses birth language, he's talking about a physical metaphor that describes and displays a spiritual reality. You see, Nicodemus, like all of us, he lived with this concept of cause and effect. 
cause and effect. And this is really the essence of most people's religion. If I do this, then God will do that. God's obligated to do this if I do that. Now, we may not say it in those terms, but we sometimes live that way. God, come on, I I go to church pretty regularly. I put a few bucks in the offering plate. I mean, did you even see, Lord, on Daylight Savings Time Sunday, I was there? I did a little for you. Why don't you do a little for me? Cause and effect. Many people live their lives like this, and this was Nicodemus's flawed perspective. He thought, because I've done all these things, then God will do this for me. The, the second problem with Nicodemus's thinking is that he was thinking that this religious change was really something just like a do-over, a fresh start. Okay, so what you're saying, Jesus, is I'm supposed to go back into my mother's womb. I'm supposed to just start this whole thing over again and be born again. And this is the way some people think of Christian conversion. That to come to Jesus is just, okay, I'm going to start over. It's this great cosmic mulligan. I'm getting a do-over, right? This is not what Christian conversion is. You see, if you got a do-over, if you got a cosmic mulligan, if you were able to say, oh, I made all these mistakes in my life, I wish I could just start over and crawl back in my mother's womb, guess what? You'd make all the same mistakes again. You'd fail in the exact same ways you've already failed. I could get one shot. I could get a million shots. I'd blow every single one because of the corruption of my nature. I'm a sinner. Notice how Jesus corrects his misunderstanding about this do-over idea. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been some confusion and disagreement about what Jesus means here when he says, born of water and the Spirit. Our Roman Catholic friends and even our Church of Christ friends, many of them would say that being born of water refers to your water baptism. That when you were baptized with water, so Roman Catholics believe that is a sacrament, that at the moment of your baby's sprinkling, that somehow they were absolved of original sin. That ain't in the Bible. Our Church of Christ friends believe when you are baptized by immersion for the forgiveness of sins, that that is a salvific event, that unless you're baptized, you won't be saved. Now, to those ideas, we simply say, what about the thief on the cross, right? He was never baptized, but Jesus promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. Others interpret this phrase, being born of water and the Spirit, to refer to human physical birth and supernatural spiritual birth. And we can understand that. There's some amount of water involved with birth. There's the breaking of the water. And so there's an interpretation that says, well, this is what Jesus is talking about. In fact, in the next verse, it seems to support that interpretation. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. But I take a third view, and that is this. I believe this is talking about a single event. And that's because of the structure of the phrase. There's only one verb, born, genethe, of water and the Spirit. One verb, these two aspects of this one event. And in fact, further, Jesus actually scolds Nicodemus because he doesn't understand this principle. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, why would Jesus think Nicodemus should understand this principle of being born of the water and of of the Spirit? Well, he's obviously thinking there's something in the Old Testament 
Here's Nicodemus. He is a scholar. He has a PhD in Old Testament theology. Surely of anybody, Nicodemus, a ruler over Israel, you're going to understand this. This last week, I came across a journal article, a theological journal article called uh, What Nicodemus Should Have Known. And it's obviously referencing this statement that Jesus, or this question that Jesus asked. You don't understand these things? So what should Nicodemus have known? As I read this article, it goes through example after example after example. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament Nicodemus was very familiar with how the concept of being born again is described and portrayed and predicted. Of all those examples, I think the most straightforward and succinct is this passage from Ezekiel 36. I've already alluded to it. The prophet Ezekiel, God speaking through him, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, when God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to sprinkle you clean with water, is he referring to our baptism? No. Is he referring to our physical birth when our mamas gave birth to us? No. He's talking about that supernatural event that happened when you are clean from all your sinful corruption. That happens when he takes out your old heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. That happens when he puts his spirit within you. That happens when he writes his word upon your heart. This is why you must be born again if you're to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And what Ezekiel's describing here and what Jesus is introducing Nicodemus to is this complete and total transformation of our very nature. Ephesians 2 describes our nature before this born-again event. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, but God. <laughs> in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul lists not one, not two, but eight Old Testament passages that describe our complete and total depravity before God. We are in a sin-sick situation. And he summarizes that desperate condition in verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the condition of every human being in the world. Our problem is we are corrupt. Our hearts are corrupt. And it is only through a unilateral act of sovereign grace, someone outside of us performing this supernatural spiritual heart surgery that we can be born again. And one of the reasons Jesus uses this metaphor of birth, this birthing language, what did you do to contribute to your birth? Absolutely nothing. Oh, say it again. You contributed nothing. You experienced it. You experienced your birth, but you contributed nothing to it. And in the very same way, being born again is a unilateral work of God. This seems to be the very point Jesus is making in verses 7 and 8. Look at those verses. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is a mysterious, sovereign act of unilateral grace. 
And I came to understand on some level this concept about 32 years ago. And when it hit me, man, it hit me. Because even though I grew up in a Christian family with a mom who was a Sunday school teacher and a dad who was a deacon in the church, I stand before you today saved not because of that. Thankful for it. Even though I went to a gospel preaching church every time the doors were open as a child, I'm saved here today not because of that, though I'm thankful for it. And even though I had a concept of Jesus' sacrifice that paid the penalty for my sin, even though I intellectually ascended to that reality, the reason I stand before you today forgiven is because on the back row of First Baptist Church, why mama? The wind blew. The Spirit blew into my life. And I was converted miraculously, powerfully. I had head knowledge of it all, but it wasn't until the Spirit invaded my life. You must, you must be born again because this answers the problem of our corrupt nature. He gives us a new heart. Here's the second problem that Christianity alone answers, and that is the condemnation of our souls and the divine solution that God has provided for this state of condemnation, of being guilty before God, is this. The Savior must bear our sin. All of us, everyone in this room, we stand guilty before the heavenly God of the universe. We are all condemned to die because we have willfully disobeyed His law, and we stand guilty. But God has provided an incredible, unbelievable, unfathomable solution. He would send his one and only son to take the punishment that we deserve. The Savior must bear our sin. Now, in the next few minutes as we move towards a conclusion, I want us to look to this Savior. I want us to look to Christ and consider how he came to bear our sin and save us from our state of condemnation First of all, I want us to look to the condescension of Christ. Look to the condescension of Christ. In verse 12, Jesus says to Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What are the earthly things? Well, the earthly things are the things that happen here on earth, and specifically this new birth. It happens in the here and now. It happens in our experience here as we walk this world, as we walk this life. And he says, if, if you can't grasp these earthly things of having your new nature, having your corruptive nature replaced with a new nature, you can't understand earthly things. How can you recognize heavenly things? What is the heavenly thing? That in the heavenly court of God, we can be forgiven. We can be expunged. We can be declared not guilty of all of our condemning sin. Of this heavenly truth that people can be fully and completely forgiven, it can't be understood unless someone from heaven comes and reveals it to us. Who could that be? Jesus. In fact, look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. You see, only someone who has ascended into heaven, who has been in heaven, can condescend, descend to earth, and let us know of these truths. And he says, who is it? He says, the Son of Man. Now, this title, the Son of Man, is the most common title in all four Gospels that Jesus uses to refer to himself, the Son of Man. And usually when people hear that phrase, they think what Jesus is referring to is that, well, he was a human. 
He's referring to his human nature. When he says, I'm the son of God, that refers to his deity. When he says, I'm the son of man, it refers to his humanity. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. He's referring to another Old Testament prophecy that Nicodemus would have been very, very familiar with. He's referring to a prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is referenced. Look at Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this Son of Man that you know Daniel prophesied about, guess what? He's standing right in front of you. I am the Son of Man who has been presented to the Ancient of Days, to the great Yahweh, the Lord of the universe, and I have been given dominion over all things. My kingdom shall never pass away. Jesus, the Son of Man, condescended, took on human flesh to reveal these heavenly things to us. So we see and we look to the condescension of Christ. Secondly, look to the cross of Christ. Look to the cross of Christ. Again, Jesus is going to reference an Old Testament event that Nicodemus would have been very, very familiar with. He references it in verse 14. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, this is referring to an event that many of you probably are familiar with, Bible students. You remember during the Israelis' wilderness wanderings after they were delivered by the mighty hand of God from their Egyptian slavery, they were wandering around for some 40 years. And God supernaturally provided for them sandals that would not wear out, but God also supernaturally provided for them food, manna from heaven. I know this is going to surprise you, but they began to grumble and complain about their diet. They didn't like what God was providing for them to eat. So what does God do? Look at Numbers chapter 21 as we see how God responds to their grumbling and complaining. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. God's provision. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against Yahweh, the Lord, and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What a bizarre story, right? They complain about the diet. God sends fiery serpents. They are bitten. They're venomous. They die. He says, okay, Moses, make a pole with a bronze serpent on it, and if they just look at it, they'll be healed from the venomous bite. Most of you are probably aware this image of a snake around a pole is still used today to refer to medical personnel, particularly EMTs, right, Chad? EMTs, this is your symbol. And so this is the symbol for healing. But what is Jesus referring to? 
Is there any event in Jesus' life where he was lifted up, and if people will look in faith, they will be healed? Obviously, he's referring to the cross. He's referring when he would be lifted up on a cross, and if people would simply look to Jesus, they would be healed from the venom of the poison of sin. Now, here's the correlation between the bronze snake on a pole and Jesus being hung on a pole. See, what the Israelites were experiencing was the just punishment from God. They deserved that. They earned that judgment to be bitten by those snakes. And those snakes caused mass hysteria. But the judgment of God was righteous nonetheless. But not only did God bring judgment, he brought a means of escape. He brought a means of deliverance and of healing. Now, why did God make Moses or tell Moses to put a snake on a pole? Because the snake represented the judgment for their sin. When we look at a cross, and in this room, we've got dozens of crosses. Every light fixture has three crosses on it. We've got a cross here on the, the pulpit. When we look at those crosses, we probably almost always think, well, the cross of Jesus. But you know what? It's really our cross. It's really our condemnation. It's really our judgment. When the Israelites looked at the snakes, that was the judgment upon their sin. When we look at the cross, we're looking at the judgment upon our sin. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Christ took the judgment in our place. Christ took the punishment we deserved. It just so happens that cross should have been me. And Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is the second must of salvation. You cannot be cleared of your guilt unless Jesus died in your place. This is a must. This was God's solution, that he would bear our punishment for our sin. So to experience the solution, we look to the condescension of Christ, we look to the cross of Christ, but thirdly, we look in confession of Christ. Jesus concludes this section by saying to Nicodemus that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I want you to go back and think what it must have been in the camp, like in the camp among the Israelites some 4,000 years ago as those snakes are starting to infest the people. And apply that to people in Chattanooga today. We encounter people every day who have been snake-bidden by sin and who are under the appropriate and just wrath of God. So imagine you're in a snake-infested community, which we are, and you go up to someone and you say, hey, I can't help but notice that you have been bitten by a snake. Did you know God has provided a cure? The cure is to look at the pole. Look at what has been lifted up, the judgment that's there on that pole. And someone responds, uh, you know what? Yes, I'm bitten, it's true. But I'm not bitten any worse than anybody else. In fact, there are some people down that church you go to, I know them, they've been bitten worse than me. I think I'll be just fine. And you walk to another man and you see he's literally got a snake attached to his arm. You say, you got a problem there, buddy? He says, yeah, I'm gonna shake it off just like I've shaken off everything else in my life. I, I can do it. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can do it. And you come into a tent, and there lies a man who's obviously been bitten 
He's laying there. His leg is swollen. He's got a fever. He's inches from death. And you say to him, hey, (laughs) there's healing. Moses has put a snake, a bronze snake on a pole. If you just open the flap of your tent and look at the pole, you'll be healed. I don't believe that silly superstition. What are you talking about? That theory of looking and living, that's ridiculous. And as you walk through the camp, you see a a mother and wife putting the final rocks on the grave of her husband who's died from a snake bite. And she hears beside her a scream. She turns, and it's her nine-year-old boy who's just been bitten by a venomous asp. She picks him up, and she begins to weep. She knows this is a death sentence. And at that point, a man comes to her and says, Hey, have you heard? There's a snake on a pole that Moses has done. If you'll simply take your child to look at the pole, you can look and live. And the wife says with a mixed hope and skepticism, how do you know it works? You roll up your sleeve. You point to the two healed wounds because I was bitten too. And I looked and I'm alive. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that's you. You've been bitten by the venomous snake of sin. And you had your whole nature corrupted. You were under the condemnation of guilt. If you've looked to Jesus, you've been healed completely. And if this is true, and it is, do we not have a responsibility to tell everyone else about the healing power of looking to Christ? Is it not incumbent upon us to share this good healing news with everyone? Friends, this is why we're doing a global impact celebration this coming weekend. Because we believe we have the only answer to the world's greatest problem. This is why on Saturday we're having an evangelism training. In fact, take out your bulletin. Take your bulletin out. Open it up and look at the top announcement on the inside page of your bulletin. You'll see there an announcement for our evangelism training. We currently have 19 people, that includes children, signed up for our evangelism training. I will tell you, we've had to adjust the schedule. It's going to start at 9 and not 10, so we can get all the points in there. Sign up for the evangelism training so you can learn how to boldly and confidently share the gospel of the healing power of Jesus. You can use the QR code or there's a sign-up sheet on the front row. Let's come together and let's learn how to be evangelists where he's placed us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Why don't we do it? Because Jesus is life. That leads to my last thought. We go out to call others to look to the cross of Jesus, to look and live. Let's pray together.